since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm tired of hell, and I'm not going to break this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Did you tell me you built a time machine? Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Monday, May 12th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year Young Adult Survivor of Brain Cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, journalist, Young Adult Breast Cancer Survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. Look it down. It is not okay. That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks. Because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. All right, I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight, a great show caregiving for parents and children. We will be tackling the issue of caregiving for those affected by young adult cancer, especially children with sick parents. Join us as we delve into this issue with Rob Harris, the founder of Rob Cares, and father-daughter team Mark and Maya Silver, co-authors of My Parent Has Cancer and It Really Sucks. Survivor Spotlight Summit on the Young Adult Survivor Coach, Jay Platt, the founder of the No Matter What Foundation. And I'm Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag SBRadio. All right. Welcome back. What up? We got the whole crew. We do. Yes. Last week was uh, Solo Mio. And me. You were here? I was here. Are you sure? <laughs> nope. No, I have no idea. <laughs> I was gone. You were drunk, though. I was not drunk. No. Oh, that's, that's every week. <laughs> <laughs> that's SOP. I'm drinking water currently. Me, too. Still too hot in here to drink anything. It else. is kind of warm. Yeah, yeah that's all right. Think. Ideally, there will be a brand new Stupid Cancer studio by the end of the year. Oh, even after it. fixing this one up. Well, we might not be in this room. Oh. We might be in a different location. Cool. Which is great. I mean, and we're going to use... Undisclosed bunker with Dick Cheney? Yes. Yeah, we're going oh. to your undisclosed location. By the way, you are not in your undisclosed location. Yeah, I'm here. Day, so welcome back. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I wasn't here last week because I had to, you know, go to my second home, NYU Hospital, 
because I took I, I had a souvenir from Vegas, which was a pulmonary embolism. So I got to uh, spend a night in the hospital and uh, you know beg for pain meds and knock me out and someone give me a hammer because the pain hurts and I just want to sleep through it. It sounds luxurious. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But then um, they told me I could leave when I got. They would say like you can leave when your pain's under control. And I'm like, all right, fine. And then you get in the cab and you're like, ah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well. All I sometimes I'm, I'm the person who's like, yeah, I don't know if I should leave yet. Like, give me another hour. But yeah. then I got a new roommate, and she was complaining that I had an iPad. She <laughs> asked the nurse if I was noisy, even though I was like half asleep and didn't have a visitor at the time. And then I heard the nurses in the hallway talking about a patient who couldn't stop vomiting. So I hit the button. They were like, "What's wrong?" I was like, "I'm ready to go home now." Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's like sometimes either the doctor yells at you to go home or other patients scare you. You're like, get me out of here it's right now. It's also like when you're in the uh, when you're in that position, you tell them like, yeah, um, come back in like 15 minutes. They come back in like two hours. I know because they forget. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even wait for the wheelchair. I was like, I can walk myself out. I'm cool. I feel better now. Wow. Healed. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was feeling better, but it was just funny how uh, well, the motivating factor is to go home from the hospital, but. Yeah, so far so good. Doing better. Are you a, not, it's not called Tish anymore. It's called um, Tish. Is it Tish? Uh, it's NYU Langone. Langone, right, right. This, this is the, the art Tish. school. Well, yes, but there's also um, Tish is one of the wings of the hospital. Okay. So I was in Tish. Right. Yeah, I forgot what the other side's called, but there's... It used to be called Rusk, but that's done now, right? Uh, Rusk is uh, for, like... Uh, orthopedic, like, knee yeah, stuff. Like that. Yeah, 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 like um, orthopedic type surgeries, like knees, hips, whatever. They need to stop naming Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Well, I, got toes. To see, well, I got to see the new emergency happening. room, which is uh, named, at, which is the Ron Perlman. It's like everything's named after a rich person. Right. He's like, I think he runs Revlon, I believe. I don't, I don't, yeah. But yeah, he's like a gazillionaire. What's so. that really ugly actor, Ron Perlman? <laughs> I don't know who that is. Oh, he's, you would know from your song. Well, the Ron Perlman's not, like, super sexy. No, no. Ron Perlman, the actor from, like, Aliens. Oh. Um, that's not really my genre. Pacific Rim and things like that. All right. Okay. Actually, he was Hellboy. Okay. You know Hellboy. Yeah, that, that's not the same Ron right. Perlman. Okay. Totally different Ron yeah. Perlman. Anyway, um, happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers out there. Thank yeah. You. Mom. Yay. Thanks for modding us. Your 39th Mother's Day, right? Yeah, 40th, actually. You probably had one when you were zero. You think? No. Do women celebrate Mother's Day in utero? No, but no, no, no. you might be under a year. You were zero. Oh, I see. Like months old. Oh, Sorry. Oh, I'm just being, you know, the numbers person. Oh, all formal. Okay. Uh, you have your, 40 mothers. You are an yeah. algorithm. Yep. The walking <laughs> algorithm. Yes, It's all exactly. over the place. Some people get really geeked out to count on Mother's Day when they're, like, in utero. What? I don't do like that. <laughs> they just want well, accolades. Yeah. yeah. So like, what did you do for your mom and uh, your wife? I didn't see her because I was on vacation with my mother-in-law, wife, and children, but I did call her, and we're going out to dinner. Good. Yes. Nice. Which is nice. You should take her to uh, Coney Island and you have hot dogs. Well, yeah, that's a great Mother's Day gift. <laughs> I love Nathan. Nathan's hot dogs. <laughs> mom, we're having a hot dog gang. Exactly. <laughs> That's my I signed you up for July. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you, all of you, for allowing me to take a vacation. And uh, all right, Rick, your first one you ever. Actually, yeah, pretty much. Since my honeymoon, my first vacation. Actually, that's not true. I, I went away with my wife in this in August of '08, when oh, I had wow. like no staff and it was just me. It was like the year right. before we decided. In your basement in your pajamas. No, underwear. I, it was <laughs> every six years. It's like a Senate term. Yeah, I know. Well, the honeymoon was '05. 
uh, we went to Disney World in 08 mm-hmm. before we knew we were going to do IVF. So we knew it would be the last time we'd ever be able to have a vacation mm-hmm. with just the two of us. And we were right. But we went to Disney World for five days mm-hmm. when I could basically afford to do anything back then because there was no company. It was just me right. doing things. And, uh, yeah, so this was four days in Florida. It was great. And uh, the kids had a great time. They behaved. They loved the flights. That's, that's I important. Said, I liked the flight more with them on it than flying, mm-hmm. so it made it exciting. And it was good. And Maureen did her best to be the guardian of the galaxy. I tried. Yeah. I tried. I deflected emails. Yeah, you did good. Thank you. And Kenny ignored me. Yep. Good. Which is really Kenny good. was drunk and sleeping on the couch. <laughs> That's my MO is ignoring you. But Kenny had a little vacation to D.C. for uh, oh, the, yeah. the Rev Forum. Tell us about that. Uh, so the Rev Forum is a joint program between Livestrong Foundation and Genentech. Say it with me now. Genentech. Genentech. It's not Genentech. It's Re- Genentech. Yeah. Well, to some people. WNBC. Exactly. Okay. Um, okay. So it was a great event. Uh, I saw a lot of our friends, a lot of new friends, and uh, talked about ways for someone, I don't know who, <laughs> someone to do better things for cancer survivors. Um, but it was great. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, saw Tig Notaro, who did her famous stupid cancer show interview from the back of a New York City cab. Yes. Yeah. She gave us like 10 minutes from the cab, and it was pretty wild. So it was funny to hear her in person. I was explaining to Matt earlier how it was like 8 a.m. in the morning and everybody's in suits and kind of tired, and she gets up on stage kind of lively but yet low-key, and she wasn't really greeted with a warm response, and she opened it with, all right, you can all sit down now. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Which only we found funny just now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I did find it funny that Maureen did not understand your Howard Stern reference. Yeah, Private Parts. Another 80s movie get a see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's add it to the list. That was the WNBC thing. WNBC. Yeah. Look, look. You're catering to millennials. A lot of us were born <laughs> after He's the 80s. Everybody knows that movie. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it several times. Yes. And for those listening at home, I'm not even going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's good to be back. Thank Our you. second show post-OMG. Yeah. The uh, community is still on fire. I know. Still I on that. fire. We'll be launching the OMG East website by the end of the week, and the registration will begin August, first Monday in August, we decided, eight weeks. Yeah. Eight weeks, which will be exciting. And then, of course, CancerCon is building now. We'll have a brand new website is up. We'll have a sponsor deck with the initial um, request for speakers and proposals and all sorts of cool stuff. We already have people like, how can I be an exhibitor? I'm going to request a speak. <laughs> I don't know about what. Yeah, I will figure that <laughs> yeah. portion out between. No, now. that was your your favorite. What was that thing you was to how to maintain a a, a weight, level, of waste, level of waste wasted in the workplace? Yeah, yeah. you're dumb. I've first. read it four times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still haven't mastered it. All right, well, let's kick off our show here. I'm really excited to welcome our first guest. If you think you are active, you are lazy. Compared to this man, Jay Platt, gunnery sergeant, United States Marine Corps, retired. Say that ten times fast. Twenty-five-year survivor of a rare genetic cancer called von Hippel Lindau. Sounds like Lando Calrissian. He is the author of No Matter What: How to Be Unstoppable Despite the Obstacles Starting Today. He's featured in the documentary film Living Unstoppable and the founder of the No Matter What Foundation. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Jay Platt. Sir, Sergeant. Welcome. Hey, guys. I'm glad to be here. 
Really, really thrilled. We're here to have you make us feel miserable about our lives because apparently you swim Alcatraz and fight sharks, right? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. <laughs> at the same time? Yes, at the same time, exactly. At the no, same I'm, time, of course. <laughs> so, again, I mean, I, I was really excited to get uh, acquainted with you on, I think it was Twitter first, and then uh, just reading your story and getting involved. Um, I am, first and all, fascinated by this idea of a genetic-based cancer and I've never heard of this. I, I'd like to consider myself unnecessarily seasoned in the language of oncology. And uh, this is quite interesting. Von Hippel Lindau, can you just tell us about that? Yeah, very briefly, at, um, two doctors. One was named Von Hippel. The other one was named Lindau. Von Hippel, uh, he first discovered this in the eyes. It, it typically starts in your eye um, for a lot of Von Hippel Lindau uh, patients. Uh, it's not normally malignant at that point. It's just when they discovered it in me, I actually had hundreds of tumors that were on the retina. Um, and eventually what happens is it can go to other areas of your body. And Lindau, Dr. Lindau, discovered that, that people who had it in the eyes, it, it was going to other areas, the brain. Uh, I've had two brain surgeries because of it. It goes into your, inside the spinal cord itself, the pancreas, the kidney. Uh, it typically becomes malignant and cancerous when it gets in the kidneys, and I've, I've had it in both kidneys. I've had a partial nephrectomy on the left side because of it. Um, it's one of these, it's, and again, as you said, it is very rare. Uh, there's about, uh, I, I think they estimate around 10,000 people in the U.S. that have it. Um, and it is a genetic-based cancer. Um, I didn't find out that I had any sign of it until I was I was in the Marine Corps for about three years and that's when I had first got any signs of it and although it's hereditary uh, I didn't know this and and a lot of people think well hereditary and we think way back to our ancestors but even hereditary condition has to start somewhere and so it started with me for some reason um, I think it could have been from immunizations and vaccinations and things like that I, I had as a Marine that that a typical person does not have, and that was something that was enough to trigger this in me. We have um, an interestingly large percentage of members of our communities who are retired military veterans under 40 now, and a lot of them got cancer from their tours. And what you're talking about doesn't sound out of the ordinary. Well, you know, I, um, <sighs> In the military, you, I, I'm not saying that you don't have to. You, you really do need to because you may go to a country that has all sorts of uh, strange uh, diseases and, and viruses that we don't have in the U.S., and so they have to vaccinate you against that. But the problem is is when they, you know, they put some sort of a live agent in your body, you don't know what's going to happen. And, like, for me, apparently I already had a compromised immune system that I didn't know about. And that was enough to, to, you know, maybe, you know, trigger it. Um, I mean, I don't know for a fact that's what it was, but, um, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I do wonder. And as you said, people in the military that, that had come down with these conditions, you do have to wonder about the kind of things that we are exposed to. And what was the treatment for this? I mean, hundreds of tumors to your eyes. Did you have any um, vision problems? And then yeah. what did they do? Yeah. Did they get rid of the chemo, radiation? Yeah, so well, my left eye got so bad, actually, um, they did a couple of what's called cryoplexies, which is a freezing of the tumors. They actually go inside the eyeball itself, back to the back, to the retina, and they froze it. And 
it ended up making me end up going, I went completely blind in that left eye. Um, I kept the eye, you know, for, I couldn't see out of it at all, but I kept it for about uh, nine years. And then in 1995, it was just hurting me so bad that they actually removed the eye completely. And so uh, the other things as far as uh, cancer in the kidney, for instance, you know, kidney cancer does not really respond to, at least at that point, um, to radiation and, and chemotherapy. And so it's, it's really a surgical thing. I've, I've been, um, <laughs> I joked with people, been carved up like a, you know, like a Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, I've had, you know, I guess probably 10 surgeries uh, over the years. And um, basically what happens is when you have a tumor, they go in and they remove that uh, that tumor. Now, there are some people with von Hippel-Lindau, which is shortened, we just call it VHL, who have had um, chemotherapy or radiation according to where the tumors may, you know, come up. Um, I, I know some people have had, it's gotten into the lungs, for instance, and I know they've had maybe a chemotherapy or radiation type thing. Jay, um, how old were you when this was first uh, discovered, and where were you deployed at the time? Yes, yeah, so excuse me. I was in, I was 20 years old. Um, just a few months earlier, I had married my high school sweetheart, and um, I, I was stationed in North Carolina, brand new Marine, been a Marine for about three years, and um, been over to pick up a rock on a Saturday, stood back up, and had all these black wavy lines. You know, as I looked at it in my left eye, that was the start of it. It was, it was in the left eye, and um, it, it took about three weeks. Of, I know a lot of people listening with your own conditions, you may have gone through misdiagnosis and just different things that often happens, and that's what happened with me. I was told it was one thing, and then... Uh, it took about a month before they finally figured out, no, it's it's this, it's von Hippel-Lindau, and uh, that was the the start and something I've been dealing with since I was, was 20. I'm, I'd be 48 um, next month. Well, good for you. I know that Annie had a quick question. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your treatment that you had with the VA and how if you felt you know, you were taken good care of, if you were concerned, if they made you feel comfortable? Well, you know, my surgeries, all the surgeries that I had were while I was in the, in the Marine Corps, the Navy handles our, our medical care. And the, luckily, um, if, if you want to call it luck, <laughs> you know, I was blessed, let's just say that, that if I had to have this condition, that I had it when I was in the military because it was so rare. They sent me to Bethesda Naval Hospital, which is where the president goes. Um, and so I got top-notch medical care there. Um, as far as the VA, I'm actually just now um, getting into the VA system, so I really can't say. I, I will say where I'm at here in Georgia, um, they have been so far very good. I have not um, had any treatments yet. Though I'm, I'm actually due for a CAT scan and MRI here uh, in a couple of weeks, so I'd be able to tell you then. <laughs> so you obviously, Marine, peak performance, you know, you have, kind of have to be in shape for that kind of stuff, and this happened to you. I'm sure it took its toll on your body and your mental, uh, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and you came out of this, and you had to rebuild your life, essentially, and... I'd love you to just share with our listeners, you know, paint that picture of what it was like for you to be in this peak position of, of uh, physical prowess as a Marine and then having to rebuild that? 
and where oh, you are I'm now. So, yes, a great question. And I, you know, when I was diagnosed, and it was over a period of years, but when I was finally medically retired in 1998, um, the doctors, just what you just said, here I'm going from this, you know, the peak. Uh, percentage of, of physical fitness that I could be, and now I've got this condition, and the doctors are telling me that uh, your best years are far behind you. And uh, that was really what I needed to hear to, to sort of motivate me. I'm the kind of person that if you tell me you can't do something, that I'm going to want to do it that much more. And so when they told me you you can't continue to be physically, you, know, you just kind of go home and just – just sort of fade away. Sit on your couch and just take it easy. And I did not want to do that. I just so yeah. I, I just did start uh, rebuilding myself. I, I think with any condition, whether it's cancer or, or any serious illness, I think physical fitness is so important. It really has. Um, I believe has really just saved my life. I mean, when I was initially diagnosed, the, the average age at that point was 40. People would live to 40, and that was it. And now it's up to about 60, and as I say, I'm 48. Um, since I have left the Marine Corps and since I was told my best years were behind me, I've done things that uh, few people have ever done, or, and, and I'm the only person to have ever swam across the Mississippi River handcuffed, shackled, and blindfolded. So uh, it shows, what <laughs> I think, what your mental state, you know, if you think about it, I really believe that there's truth, and if you believe that you can do it, you really can do it. All right, I got to stop you there for a second. I know I read this in the, in the pre-con with all the information you sent, but you did just say that you swam the Mississippi blindfolded, handcuffed. And <laughs> yes, it's like my Friday night except without water. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, so how I, 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 how do you go? It, sorry, sorry. How do you go from I need to get my life back in order and try to make things as normal as possible to I'm going to jeopardize everything I'm striving for for these crazy, amazing stunts. Well, I always do these stunts uh, in as a fundraiser of some sort, whether it's um, that particular one, the Mississippi River, I was doing for uh, service people who had been wounded in combat. Um, and so I try to tie it into that. And, and really what I'm wanting people to, to see is that you may not ever want to – swim across the Mississippi River blindfolded, handcuffed, and shackled, and I hope you don't. <laughs> um, but I want you to see and, and people to see that we limit ourselves by saying, I can't do such and such. In fact, you can. And so what I try to do is come up with something as crazy as, you know, for your reaction, that's most people's reaction, is there's no way you can do that. And when people say that, I say, oh, yes, you can. Now, I will say this. When I was a Marine, I taught water survival, so I'm a, I'm a survival expert in the water, um, so I know how to swim that way. But uh, it's mainly, it's more mental. I say it's probably 90% mental, 10% physical in any kind of, kind of thing that you do. Um, and so that's why I do these, these crazy things that I do. In the Do Not Try This at Home, tell us a little bit about uh, swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco. Yeah, so in 2007, I, I, I was wanting to, I had hiked the Appalachian Trail. I was one of only 300 people to, to have to hike, southbound hike the Appalachian Trail at that point. And so I was always one up the ante, and so I decided to swim from Alcatraz. I thought no one would have ever done it. I found out there actually was, uh, Jack LaLanne had done it. 
bound, with your hands and feet bound. That's the way I did it. Um, and that was probably one of the hardest things, uh, particularly because in the San Francisco Bay, there's, you, know, you don't know what kind of sea life is there. You know, there were two helicopters hovering over me. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure they were there in case the Great White or something came out and you know, <laughs> grabbed me. And it took me almost two hours to get all the way across that bay, but I was able to do it. And um, that, after having done that, is really why I did the Mississippi River, because people were saying, oh, well, you know, what, what's going to be the next thing? And so I'm always looking for the for the next thing. But uh, Alcatraz was uh, certainly probably one of the toughest things I've ever done. Very cool. This may, loaded, this may be a loaded question, but do you think having gone through a uh, life-altering experience gave you this courage, or just by you, you kind of have to have that instinctively to go in the military to begin with, correct? Well, but kind of both. Um, but I do think I, I, I joke around with my wife that if if it hadn't been for this, I might just be you know some couch potato. <laughs> so I do think there's something you know, that that's, that's in me that that says you know what I'm not going to let this condition beat me. I, I'm not. If, if if it beats me, then I'm going to go out swinging. And um, I think that's part of it. And and so yeah, I'm, I'm always and so that is certainly a motivator. I, I mean, I will admit that. I mean. People who are listening to the call, you, you don't have to have gone through some traumatic experience to, to be motivated. I, I'm not saying that, but it certainly has been that way for me. I, I, there's no doubt about that. And you have a book and a movie all about you? Yes, I've done a couple of books. And then, uh, yeah, there's a, there is a documentary film called Living Unstoppable, and that um, really talks about how I was able to overcome this, this cancer and this condition, and, and then it it ends with me swimming the Mississippi River. It sort of builds up, and people don't know, is he going to be able to do this or not? And so then the, the last 10 minutes of the film is me actually, we edited it down, of course. It took me about 40 minutes to do in reality. But about 10 minutes, we showed me swimming across the Mississippi River. Yeah. How did you do that without being able to see the other side of the river? Well, my brother, and let me make sure I say his name in case he listens, because he says he's the, I never say his name, Jody Platt. <laughs> he was my safety swimmer, which means he was in the water. I couldn't see. He never touched me, but he would say left or right. And when I was certain, you know, if I would go the wrong way, a lot of times you can even see him in the film. He was saying, right, 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 because I was going the wrong way. And so I would just go toward his voice. And uh, I thought it was a great metaphor for life, too, that, uh, you know, having somebody there that to, you know, keep you going straight. You can't do things by yourself. The importance of a team and all that. I thought it was just a great metaphor. Um, and so he was he was there for me and really kept kept me motivated. Uh, I, I know I was stuck out in the middle of that river for about 15 minutes. And he, later, after we were done, he said, I didn't know if you were going to make it or not. But he just kept on saying, you're doing good. You're doing great. <laughs> you know, but here I am stuck. And then somehow I just kept kicking, kicking, kicking. And I was able to finally kick free and, you know, keep on going. He probably just kept saying, five more minutes, five more minutes. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly, just five more minutes. <laughs> well, I'm glad he was there because he could have went up in, like, uh, New Orleans or something, I suppose. Yeah, no kidding, yeah, because exactly, that's exactly what would have happened. So let's, uh, let's close on, uh, first of all, this is extraordinary. I don't think we, I, I, I think I can say with confidence we've never had a guest on the show in seven years who's done any of this. No. <laughs> I mean, they've, they probably had books and films, but... I don't think anyone's shackled, blindfolded, you know, all that stuff. So kudos for that. But you are now uh, the founder of the No Matter What Foundation. I love that phrase. It, it means so much. 
what inspired you to start a charity, and what, what's your mission, and what are you guys doing there? Yeah, you know, we we support things like the American Cancer Society, um, Live Strong, um, but then also some other things that are near and dear to me, which are you know soldiers and Marines and sailors who have been wounded in combat, um, and so. Our mission really is to show people what is in fact possible. And so these are is tied in with different adventure events that I do, and we do fundraising to that. And 100% of the funds that we do raise goes to whatever organization we're raising it for at the time. That's that's, and that's what that's what we do. And and that's one of the things that gets me up in the morning and keeps me going. Um, cancer research, for instance, I feel like we're very close. I've I, I, I'm confident that within our lifetime they will find a cure for cancer, but it takes all of us, you know, it takes us together to raise funds because the scientists need those that, that money in order to be able to do the research. So actually that leads me uh, with the perfect segue to my final question is, how is your health today, and are you still monitored? Is this something that you are considered disease-free, or is something you kind of have to just live with forever? Yeah, well, um Unfortunately for me, there, there, there is no cure uh, as, now, as of now. You don't go into remission. It's something that you, you constantly have to be monitored for. And so um, as of now, I'm monitored every year. I get CAT scans and MRIs. Um, the last surgery I had was in 2011. I had brain uh, surgery. I had a brain tumor that actually when I finished swimming in the Mississippi River, I, I Finished, you know, got to the other side, and I said, my head really hurt. <laughs> and so that was a brain tumor, and they had to do brain surgery. And um, so it is sort of a, a watch, and when they need to do something, they do it. The, the scariest part is that I do have kidney cancer, um, and so that's sort of a, a watch type of, of thing, too. If the, they found with VHL patients that until the tumors get to about three centimeters, they don't typically metastasize. And so it is scary walking around with an active tumor in your body, but uh, uh, I, that's just you know, part of the deal, I guess. Right, and, and we have lots of people that are living with cancer every single day. Like me. Like me, Goodman, my co-host right here next to me, and my VP of programs, Ali Ward, and, and numerous mm-hmm. thousands of people who have are happy to have this as the alternative, and it's a step in the right direction towards hopefully one day there will be treatments where we can all be considered disease-free. Uh, yes, I agree with that. All right, we've been talking to Jay Flight, Gunnery Sergeant, United States Marine Corps, retired, the founder of the No Matter What Foundation, author of No Matter What, How to Be Unstoppable Despite the Obstacles, starting today. He's been featured in the documentary Living Unstoppable and is the only person... I'm going to do, I want to get this right. Handcuffed, shackled, and blindfolded to swim the Mississippi River. Man, you are a, a hell of an inspiration. I, I hope to meet you one day, my friend. Thank you so I, much I for all you do. Thank you so much. All right, Thank Jay, jplatt.com, P-L-A-T-T. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we need to forget the uh, New York City Marathon. <laughs> we have new goals, everybody. <laughs> an ironclad consent yeah. form. Yes, like, exactly. exactly. The, exactly. Tough, the tough mutter fucker. Yeah. I should also add, he blogs on the Huffington Post quite regularly at the huffingtonpost.com slash J-Platt, B-L-A-C-T. Slash shackled. Amazing, amazing stuff. <laughs> All right, folks, now it's time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. 
Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some meetups happening in Chicago, Novi, Rochelle Park, Meridian, New York, Durham, Houston, Roseville, Phoenix, and Arvada. If you go to events.stupidcancer.org to find out where they are. Is that like a riddle? Well, I just gave you the cities. <laughs> so where's Waldo? Exactly. All right, guys. Go over to instapeer.org. That's I-N-S-T-A-P-E-E-R, instapeer.org. Our brand new mobile health app is currently in phase two crowdfunding. We are very excited about it. It is going to be the first platform of its kind to do automatic anonymous peer matching for cancer patients and caregivers, and it is incredibly exciting. Once more, instapeer.org. All right, Matthew, it's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. We've got all new stuff as of an hour ago uh, to choose from. Stay nice and, nice and cool through the summer with a stupid cancer tee. We've also got brand new skateboards. And now you can give cancer the actual bird with the cancer bird, which I saw that you called Flip. Yeah, his name is Flip, officially. All right. Name by my roommate yes. at uh, OMG. StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. <coughs> Wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right. For the first half of this segment, we are welcoming Mark and Maya Silver. Maya is Mark's daughter, the co-authors of My Parents Has Cancer, and It Really Sucks, Real Life Advice from Real Life Teens. The book was published in 2013. Uh, physician, author, and cancer survivor Wendy Harpham wrote, Give Strap a copy of My Parent with Cancer and leave it on your teen's pillow. Mark and I met at the, uh, we go into this, the Picori meeting at um, Hopkins, and uh, I'm really excited because we've never really done a show about uh, teens whose parents are sick. Please welcome Mark and Maya Silver. Mark, Maya, welcome, welcome. to the show. Thank you for having Hello. us. Hello. Thank you for having us. It's so great to have you. Mark, I, I, I had, I'm stumbling for words. I was so uh like overwhelmed to see this other part of you that I didn't know existed when uh, we first met at Hopkins. Um, and it really inspired me. It, it, we, like I said, we have such a robust infrastructure for supporters of super cancer, but we kind of tend to miss out on the younger caregivers when their parents get sick. And it, it, the book is amazing. And uh, it, you've fostered an, an entirely new conversation in our organization, but how do we bring support to teens? whether they have cancer or are dealing with a parent's cancer. So thank oh, you for thank, all of that. Thank you. I mean, you're right. Teenagers are just an unheard group that they, they're, because they're teenagers, I think a lot of parents assume, oh, they're typical teenagers, they're doing okay. And, in fact, they have a lot of needs and worries and concerns when a parent or even a sibling gets cancer. So I want you to just start from the beginning here. What, uh, what inspired uh, this book? I want you to talk about the story. Um, well, well, our story is that uh, my wife and Maya's mom, Marcia, was diagnosed with breast cancer when our daughters were 12 and 15. And um, fortunately, Marcia's today in good health, but we had a rough year. She went through surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation treatments. And we told the kids what was going on, but they didn't seem to be phased by it. They seemed to just be like typical teenagers, and sometimes they drove us crazy, and we didn't really asked them how they were feeling. That was the other thing. We just told them what was going on medically, but we never sat down and said, gee, how is this making you feel? You know, how are your friends treating you? How's school doing? We just assumed, oh, they're, they're annoyed by us, as all teenagers are annoyed by their parents. So 
we didn't really talk about these issues. And then a few years later, I had done a book for husbands called Breast Cancer Husband, and we began thinking about Maya and her sister Daniela's experience and what, what did they go through, and could they have used any help or advice through all this period? It turns out the answer is yes. <laughs> and and where, was, uh, where was your wife treated? What hospital? Um, she was, had her surgery and, and uh, treatments in Washington, D.C. at different hospitals. She had some great doctors. I mean, that's one thing we learned is, like, boy, if you have a doctor that gives you confidence and makes you feel like no matter what happens, you can deal with it, that's, that's very, very helpful. <laughs> and uh, well, it the, was. Reason, the reason I ask is not, not to shame the hospital, if that's what, what this comes to, is basically was anyone in your – anyone who was in your care, did they have a sense that you had a family and that you needed to speak to your children? Um, did you meet other parents who were sick who had kids? We were so busy dealing with cancer that we really didn't. I mean, we did actually do one session with the therapist at the, at the beginning of Marsha's treatment just to say, you know what, this is going to be a rough time for us and things might happen that, we're, you know, that we don't expect and do you guys have any questions or needs or concerns? And it was a good meeting, but we just never really followed up because the kids seemed to be doing okay. I mean, they really seemed to be doing fine. And, I mean, you know how it is when you're dealing with cancer. I mean, Marsha had, you know, bilateral breast cancer, she had surgeries in each breast, she had chemotherapy, she had complications from chemotherapy, she had a port. She, it's like so many things going on, and you're running to doctors at all hours. And we were kind of thankful in a way that the kids were teens, and we thought, you know, we could leave them alone, and they seemed to be doing fine. So we just didn't give it any thought, and no one, no one advised us or talked to us about, you know, your kids might be worried or upset or whatever. We just kept on going, I guess. And Maya, how old were you when this all started? I was 15 when my mom was diagnosed. And how did you take the news? How did you, you know, I know my nieces for them, they just wanted to do something. So one, like, grow out her hair and donated it. One, um, you know, designed a T-shirt and raised money for research. How, what was your outlet when, once your, your parents told you what was going on? Right. Well, I mean, the, the way my dad describes it tells you a lot, that we were dealing with it pretty much internally and not externally at all. And I think that's sort of, you know, that's something that's personal to me and my sister is the way we were coping with it. But inside my head there was a lot going on, and I just didn't really know how to express it or who to talk to my feelings about. Um, and I just felt really awkward about it at the time. And it wasn't until my father and I wrote the book that I really have been able to reflect what I was going through and um, understand sort of why I was very distanced from the whole experience. And, uh, I mean, at the time we would try to do nice things for my mom, and I think we went to chemotherapy with her once, and then when she was all clear after radiation, we made her, like, a welcome home banner. And, you know, it, the whole experience is kind of a blur, and we were really checked out of it. And I think that's a big reason why we wanted to write this book was to have teens know how to deal with it and to really understand the experience and be um, accepting to talk about it and excited to talk about it and deal with it instead of internalizing everything. My, I, I remember being 15. I didn't really enjoy it now that I'm turning 40. <laughs> in retrospect. But um, it's hard enough being 15 in uh, 1986 when I was 15. Being 15 today is ridiculously impossible in my mind. So <laughs> how, 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 did you, how did your friends deal with this? What, was there... I mean, I can only imagine kids are horrible in high school to begin with, but was there rudeness? Was there bullying? Was there any kind of negativity? Were you referred to those kids with the cancer parents? 
No, you know, I had a great group of friends, and I think the one strange thing um, about my situation socially was that I didn't want to talk about it, so my friends would be like, how's your mom doing? You haven't mentioned her in a long time, or do you want to talk about it? And I was just like, no, I'm fine, (laughs) and really just did not want to bring it up at school. I didn't want to be that kid stigmatized that had a parent with cancer. I didn't want people to feel bad for me. But we did encounter a lot of teens in the interviews that we did that did experience some bullying or friends that just said the wrong thing either because they didn't know what else to say or they were being a little bit malicious. And so it's it's definitely um, complicated territory for teens to wade in terms of how to tell their friends and then how to communicate what they need from their friends and use them as a support network. Yeah, I mean, we talked to, uh, I think, over 100 teens for the book because we wanted to have lots of different experiences. And I remember one girl was so mad because she said, my friends would say to me, I'm sorry. And she's like, what are you sorry for? It's not your fault my mom has cancer. So sometimes even an innocent comment can really set somebody off. And one girl told us that uh, her her best friend at school wrote her a note and said, I have so much on my plate, I can't deal with your mom having cancer, so I can't be friends with you anymore. So there are kids who can really be cruel and friends who can desert you, and there are just a lot of different things that happen that play out in the teen years when the parent has cancer. And definitely a team that we found was that teens, uh, teens that um, were able to find someone going through something similar, it didn't necessarily have to be another parent with cancer, but another parent with a disease or battling alcoholism really were able to identify um, more closely and feel like they had someone who actually understood them. And one of the camps we um, worked with in recruiting teens for interviews is called Camp Kesem, and that's um, such a powerful tool for teens to be able to go to a camp like this and be surrounded by other teens going through the same thing. Yeah, I think I told Mark, uh, Jane um, uh, Saccaro and I from Camp Kesem are very good friends. We do a lot of collaborative work together with their patient populations and their, their campers. Um, so, our, so this is a loaded question, but uh, beside the book, which didn't exist back then, what would have been helpful to you in hindsight now? Um, I think a support group would have been tremendously helpful. I probably, I'm trying to put myself in my 15-year-old shoes, I probably would have been <laughs> like reluctant to go and um, put up a fight about it, just like I did for my parents wanting us to go to a therapist. But I think being able to connect with teens, either through a support group or something like Camp Custom, would have really helped me because I just had this sense that none of my friends could understand. They didn't know what I was going through, and they just, um, you know, misunderstood what I was going through. And I think having that would have really helped. A book also would have been helpful, um, some kind of online resource that was kind of before the days of being really connected to the Internet and Googling everything. So I didn't really do a lot of online research, but having some kind of resource to tell me what other people are going through and what's normal would have been really helpful. And we did visit a couple of support groups. Oh, I was going to say we visited a couple of support groups in um, Cleveland at the Gathering Place, and then, as Maya was saying, at Camp Kesem. And the kids who did go, I mean, Maya's right, a lot of kids don't go, but the kids who go were just so grateful to be in a place where everybody knew what they were going through, and they could say whatever they said, and nobody judged them. And I was amazed, too, at Camp Kesem because kids there had all different kinds of situations, from a parent with stage 4 cancer to a parent who was treated and is doing fine three years ago, but the kid still has some worries and concerns. And nobody judged anybody else. They weren't like, wow, you're lucky because your mom's alive and my mom is not in good shape. They were just so accepting of each other, and they all kind of understood what they were going through, and it meant the world to them to have that week at Camp Kesem. Uh, we were going to jokingly ask, uh, why a book? That Do teenagers actually read books, or should this be something else? <laughs> 
I just heard some statistic today that teenagers are not reading as much <laughs> as they used to. Well, well, here's the true story. So my wife, Marcia, is a high school teacher, and she took her kids to the library to pick a book out recently so they could write about it. These are kids who are from other countries who are learning English as a second language. So one of the kids picked our book just by coincidence, and Marcia was like, oh, my God, do you know that that book is written by my husband and my daughter? And the girl loves the book, and I just... Like 10 minutes ago, Marcia showed me the book report she did. So I guess somewhere some teens are still reading books. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I actually, I, um, was, I'm friends with a family in the Gunnison area, western area of Colorado, and they're very, like, traditional western family. Um, they live on a ranch. And I found out that his wife was battling brain cancer, and so I gave him a copy of the book for his um, – he had four kids – if any of them were interested in reading it. And I thought that maybe his daughters would be interested. They were a little bit younger, and maybe girls would be more, you know, into accepting this as a resource. But he said that he gave it to his daughter, and his 16-year-old son, who's a wrestler, a, you know, aspiring rancher, grabbed the book and just, like, devoured it and <laughs> hogged it from his sisters. And so that was really powerful for me to hear that, like, a teenage boy who's not, you know, who's kind of like a trying to be a manly boy, was interested in this as a resource and just kind of was able to find solace in a book that you can just privately take and devour and hear other people's stories in. Well, I think now's a good time to bring out our, our, our second guest here to join us in a chat room, uh, an AOL chat room <laughs> style forum. Uh, Rob Harris, a good friend of mine on the shows, uh, has been a speaker at Stupid Cancer for two and a half years now. He's a caregiver caregiver advocate, best-selling author, radio show co-host, and speaker, and he was recently featured um, in Coping with Cancer magazine. He's been on NPR, uh, so maybe Mark knows him, because NPR is apparently where everyone goes. That is super cool. But uh, Rob Harris joining us right now. Hey, Rob. Hey, how's everybody doing? And thank you so much for having me on the show. No, it's great, and you've been listening, and I was hoping you could chime in a bit, because caregiving means different things to different people, and it, it, it is very nuanced and very delicate, and there are lots of individual factors that go into it. But this is a situation that honestly has not really crossed the stupid cancer desk in at any point where a teenager has a mother who's sick, and they have to find that community. And she's mentioning finding other children whose other parents have other illnesses, and it's irrelevant what that parent has. They get it in that sort of peer nature um, and regardless of age. So I, I would love you to share your experience. Um, by the way, Rob is at robcares.com. Well, I'd love to, but I, I, I'm so impressed with what Maya had to say because, quite frankly, Maya, the experiences that you went through as a teenager is exactly what a caregiver goes through when they first find out that uh, their loved one has cancer. And back when my wife had cancer the second time, uh, my boys were, this will age me a little bit, but my, my oldest son was 20, my youngest one was 16. And, Mark, to your point, we talked about the physical, but we never talked about the emotional side of it. And I'm listening and going, oh, man, I should have done it so differently, and I need to read your book, even <laughs> though my kids are a little bit older now. But absolutely, the, the similarities, the internalization, the, the, the not sharing the information, the feeling like, okay, I'll deal with this on my own, all of those things take place whether you're a teenager or one of us older people. Yeah, I can really relate to that, too, because the first book I did was Breast Cancer Husband, and husbands and teenagers have a lot in common when it comes to caregiving because it's just 
often not part of their typical behavior in a lot of families. It's the, it, you know, despite all the liberation of, of the sexes, it's still the woman who does a lot of the caregiving things in a family, and it's hard for guys, and they do tend to keep all their feelings inside and don't know who to share them with, and, and none of their friends understand unless their friends have been through something similar. And, and it's so interesting because what happens in the teen world about kids either bullying or stepping off the plank and not wanting to be a part of it, that happens in the adult world, too, with caregiving, because people don't know how to address it. They don't know how to deal with it. So they either step on or they step off the plank. And we experienced all of those things. So the similarities are just uh, rather amazing to me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that goes to the bigger picture of uh, just relationships in general, whether it be, you know, definitely the dynamic between adults, whether it be romantic relationships or marriages or friends and just, you know, sometimes they can't handle that caregiver role and have to step aside or sometimes they step up. Uh, Rob, what has been your experience with, you know, couples and marriages? Well, in terms of, it's interesting. Uh, the very first interview that I did when I first wrote my book, I was asked about that. It, it, it had to do with a young lady who had cancer and her boyfriend dumped her. He said, I'm just not going to deal with this. It's not what I, I jumped in for. And so I, I wrote a blog about wedding vows, and I took each line of the wedding vows, and I broke them down and said, what does this mean, and what does this mean? And before you say I do, you better be in for the whole game, because the whole game may not be just roses. And some people can handle it, and some people grow stronger from it. My wife and I, when she had cancer the second time and she had a sarcoma, her odds of survival, and I hate odds of survival because they're just numbers, but her chances of survival were 28%, and they gave her about three months to live. And what it did for us is we fell in love with each other deeper than we'd ever had before, and we learned not to take a single day for granted. Unfortunately, conversely, many people jump off and, and disappear, and I've talked to many folks where the caregivers have abandoned the spouse, and I, I get so frustrated with that. I want to chime in here real quick from Maya and then back to Rob about people who write books. Uh, it always fascinates me that, A, you can write a book, but it's also fascinating that people read your book. But I was, I was <laughs> Maya, in your research, it said you, you interviewed over 100 other teenagers, uh, parents and experts. How did you find those teenagers, and what was the response? What kind of response did you get when you were being the person writing the book who was a teen whose mom was sick? Well, we got um, a lot of teens through Camp Kessim and through support groups, through hospitals that had um, a therapist on staff. My dad did a lot of research through hospitals as well. And I also did um, a Facebook shout-out to um, all of my friends who just said, have any of you been through this or do you know anyone that's been through this? And that yielded a few, um, a few people who I actually had no idea ever had a parent with cancer, so that was interesting. And... You know, it was really it was wonderful to be able to talk to all those teens and not I mean not so much to relive the experience, but just to hear them all echoing each other and echoing what I had felt. Um, and I think I could really come to those interviews from a compassionate standpoint because I'd been through it. And I think a lot of the teens felt like they could relate to me more because I could share my story back with them or commiserate with how they were feeling. And so it was just it was a really interesting process to interview all those teens and see how they connected and differed from each other as well as with myself. 
So do you um, talk to other teenagers? Are you, are you involved with Kesem on a more meaningful level where we could possibly work together to do team support? Um, we're, the last involvement we've had with Camp Kesem was their, um, I think it was the 2013 annual fundraiser in D.C., and my father and I spoke there and were able to connect with a lot of the parents and teens. And since we haven't had any involvement, but would definitely be interested in working with them again. Now, so back, back to Rob for a second. Yeah, you had young children when your wife was uh, diagnosed um, the first and second time, correct? Uh, the first time they were very young. Uh, the second time uh, my oldest son had just turned 20 and my youngest son had just turned 16. So dealing in the teen years as, as Mark and Maya have, uh, I was going through the same thing with mine. One was very strong and handled it very well, and the other one uh, kind of rebelled. He basically wanted to be recognized and noticed, and so he did all the things that you would hope that a kid wouldn't do during that period. So everybody's a little different, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, if I can chime in, we looked at, you know, does, does uh, when a teenager has a parent who is diagnosed with cancer, does that make the teen prone to engage in risky behavior? And I think maybe about one out of ten of the kids that we interviewed did engage in risky behavior. They drank, they hooked up, they punched holes in their wall and broke their hand because they punched, tried to punch a hole in a brick wall. So, and you don't really know in, in many cases what these teens have done that anyway, but, but certainly it adds a lot of stress to a house and to a, a teen's life in, in many cases. Mark, one of the most well, interesting words you use in the book is called uh, parentified. I like that word. We like to ify things here at TB Cancer. Um, but uh, what did you mean by parentified? Yeah, I mean, it was a term that um, some therapists started using with us because the kids that we met, actually, they knew what was happening to them. A lot of them, if it was in a single-parent home or they were a teenager and had younger siblings, they began taking on jobs that the parent usually did, and that's called parentification. And some of the kids would say, yeah, my, my age is 15, but my cancer age is 40, because they felt like a 40-year-old. They were packing lunches. They were picking their siblings up after school. They were running carpools. So it's... Um, it's, it's a tough burden. I mean, a lot of kids find great fulfillment and, and feel really important to help out and want to help out, but there's that fine line where you can kind of tip over and take away the kids just the joy of being a teenager, and you want to give your kids a chance to, you know, go out and you know, hang out at the mall and hang out with friends and do all that stuff. So it's, it's an interesting term, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can, you know, if it takes over a teen's life and they can't be a teenager anymore, that's, that's really rough. Rob, my question is for you. Actually, I have two questions. What's your advice that you give to couples and families who are going through this type of situation? Because it does definitely change the dynamic of uh, romantic relationships. And also, what's your advice for caregivers and how they should cope with their partner having cancer? Well, I, I think the, the answer to both those questions is communication. And I was guilty of that in the early stages of my wife's second cancer in that Again, being the guy, you, you feel like you've got to have this testosterone-laden wall around you. To, you're the man of the house. You can take care of it. Guys, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. You have to communicate because what I did is I just went, I, I, I went to a, a place where my wife never knew how I was feeling other than I always tried to make it seem like a happy place. Everything was wonderful, and I never showed her what I was really feeling until I realized, hey, this isn't good. You have to communicate with each other. You have to tell people how you feel because, quite frankly, many times the patient is as worried about the caregiver as the caregiver is about the patient. 
So you have to have those conversations. And with family and friends and all of your relationships that you have, you know what, it's, it's on the caregiver, not others, but it's on the caregiver to come out and say, hey, this is what I need from you or this is what I'd like from you because most people are waiting for the caregiver to come to them and then the caregiver is waiting for them to come to the caregiver. And meanwhile, you have this enormous disconnect and everybody starts resenting each other because nobody's talking. And it's funny, but I had somebody ask me that question when I was at the OMG conference uh, in 2013 after uh, the panel discussion. They said, what is it that what, what is the one thing that, that is lacking? And, and the answer was communication amongst the husband, wife, child, children, or whatever it may be. But that's the piece that from all angles, whether it's husband, wife, friends, family, colleagues, everybody kind of wants to know, but nobody's willing to step up and say that. Yeah, there's a great term that, that therapists use called protective buffering. I did a story for Cure magazine about this where – you, you want to protect your loved one by not telling them how you're really feeling. And like Rob said, then there's no honest communication, and that's not really a good thing. You know, it's interesting, Mark. Uh, I had Kathy Latour, who's the founder of uh, Care Magazine, on my show about an hour ago. She's a regular on our show. She mentioned that. She didn't mention by name, but she mentioned that point on the show. So it's an amazing coincidence that you just brought Although that up. Sometimes my wife would say, like, I don't want to know how you're feeling because she had enough to deal with, with her <laughs> cancer. So it is, it's a very delicate dance where, you know, when someone is dealing with cancer, they're dealing with a hell of a lot. And, it, and, and for the husband to say, gee, you know, I, I was out crying in the car today might be a bit much for the patient to handle at some points. But it, it is generally good to be honest about how you're feeling. So, so, so we, Maya, we tend to be martyrs. Maya, how old are you now? I'm 28. Okay, so how how has your life been shaped by this? We we like to talk. We have a lot of young adults. I mean, we are a young adult cancer organization that includes young adults affected by the cancer of their parents, siblings, partners, children. Um, of which now you're you are clearly a member of our organization. Good luck with that. And. I was going to ask you, how did this mature you? Do you think that you were, were aged a little bit and that you, you grew up a little too fast because of this and you're where you're at now because of that? I mean, I wouldn't say that I was parentified, as we were talking about before. Um, my parents still maintained um, the household. I, wasn't, I didn't really have to take care of my sister, but I definitely felt sort of protective of her. And it's hard to say whether this experience shaped the way I cope now with um, adversity or if um, this is just the way I cope and that was my first grounds to be tested, so to speak. But it definitely clear, you know, made it clear to, for me what helps me deal with challenges and you know, that's staying busy and um, being with friends even if I'm not talking about what I'm feeling, just having company. Um, and then just exercise and hobbies and just creative pursuits. I just developed a number of coping mechanisms that really worked for me. So it's hard to say whether that came out of my mom's cancer or not. Um, and then, you know, in another way that it really matured me or changed me is my perspective on what, a, you know, what a problem is or what a challenge is. And so I definitely, this is not necessarily a good thing, but if I have a friend that's complaining about some little trivial problem, you know, it's like, well, you don't have cancer, your parent doesn't have cancer. And that's kind of just something in my head <laughs> that, you know, I'm always wanting to compare it to my mom's cancer or someone with cancer or terminal diseases. Um, and so it's just sort of a perspective that I think came with dealing with that experience. 
All right. So like 13 years ago, there was no Internet. I was diagnosed in 96, so there was no, no nothing back then. We joked about AOL chat rooms. But what would be your advice today for a teenager in a similar situation in today's intensely challenging and noisy universe of the Internet? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a delicate issue. Um, I think one thing that's important is that obviously, you know, your teen's going to go on Google and be asking every question that's in their head and trying to seek answers online. That's just going to come naturally to them. And so you don't want to dissuade them from doing that, but just to be, tell your teen, you know, like look at the information that you're finding cautiously, check it with us, because not everything's going to apply to your case. And so they might find some information about the type of cancer that their parent has and someone else's story about how that cancer is lethal and their parent died from it, and then they have a skewed idea of the truth in their head. And so it's important to acknowledge that your teen is going to be searching online for answers and just to make sure that they check whether that's relevant to their situation. And I think the Internet can also be a great tool to find other teens going through similar experiences through chats or forums and things like that. So that would be my advice. Mark, what has the response been uh, to the book? Maya, you can comment on that as well. I think the response, the response has been really, it's been amazing. It's like kids, I think kids, like Maya said, they want to understand what they're going through. And one of the words they use a lot in the book is normalize. And it's like we tried to normalize a lot of situations and just say, if you're mad at your parent because they got cancer, that's normal. If you wish the other parent got cancer, that's normal too. And I think kids really appreciate that. And having all these things being said in the voices of the kids that we interviewed just makes it seem like it's, you know, a, a big group of kids just talking. And if I could just backtrack for a second, you should talk to Maya was talking about the Internet, and, and you had asked her, I think the other thing kids need to be wary of with the Internet, too, is when they start, if they start posting things about their parent on Facebook or whatever, I don't know if Facebook is used by anybody under 20 anymore, but if you put stuff out on social media, it could come back and bite you. It could bring you support, but it could also bring you um, some of the bullying and, and, and harsh comments. So you just have to be really careful and make decisions wisely about what you put out on the Internet. Or you might put something on the Internet, and maybe your parents aren't, telling certain people about the cancer, and you put it out there, and your friends know, and so you just have to really watch that kind of communication. Well, we, we joke about your social footprint when you're the person posting about your own stuff in terms of, you know, uh, dating or what your LinkedIn resume is going to say, or someone can sort of uh, search for you and look for search results about what you posted in the past before meeting you. Um, clearly, if you have a, a teenager or older child, they can do that on your behalf without meaning to do anything negative, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes they just interact with friends in ways that backfire. Like one, one girl was being teased by friends at school, and she put something on her Facebook page saying, I wish you'd stop making jokes about my mom. And the girl who this was intended to got really angry, like, everybody knows it was me. So it, it, it can lead to lots of um, unfortunate results. Yeah, I mean, again, we always joke here, not really joke, but just make the point that it's hard enough being 22, throw cancer on top of that, but it's hard enough being 15, throw your parents' cancer on top of that, and that must make for some really interesting dialogue uh, these days, at least. I know back in 2000, life was a little simpler, not that much simpler, but a little simpler. Um, I will uh, give Rob another uh, shout-out here. Rob is the uh, founder of robcares.com. And uh, he is a, a cancer advocate, best-selling author, radio show co-host, speaker. Rob, what have you been up to these days after you settled down from uh, Las Vegas? <laughs> well, I'm in the process of 
getting our second book ready to go. It's um, having negotiations with my publisher and going through the final edit. So hopefully uh, our second book should be out, I would think, in about eight or nine weeks. And also in the process of developing a product that I'm hoping will be available to help all caregivers and patients throughout the United States that I'm hoping to get into the hospital systems as well as uh, different doctor's offices and oncology's offices. So it's a full-time endeavor along with my regular full-time job. Awesome. So Mark and Maya, final thoughts on this. The book is My Parent Has Cancer and It Really Sucks. Real-life advice from real-life teens. I mean, to me, the most important thing is, like, just talk to each other, you know, and, and as, as Rob was saying, it's like husbands and wives don't always talk to each other, and parents and, and teens don't always talk to each other, too, and just ask them how they're doing, leave a note in the hall and, and say, got any questions? Jot them down and I'll answer them. There are all kinds of ways to communicate. It doesn't have to be a big family meeting, but just, like, keep those lines open and ask your kids how they're doing and ask them the next day after you tell them something, say, hey, that stuff I just told you about mom's cancer, was that too much information, not enough information? Just kind of keep talking in a casual way and, and, um, and that helps. Yeah, and this is something we didn't really cover at all, but communication with the school is also really important. Obviously, a school is kind of a whole teen's life. It's where they have all their friends and all their activities and all their lovely stress. And so we really emphasize communicating with the school, letting the school know what's going on so that they can be an advocate for the teen um, and really help them get through school and a parent's cancer at the same time. Well, as I mentioned, this is a really important show. This is a very important topic that we've now discovered we were not doing a, a good job at and we want to do a better job at. So serving the needs of teenagers and college students whose parents are sick is now completely on our radar. So thank you guys for being amazing and choosing to uh, take this leap of faith with this book. And Rob, you're always incredible. Thanks for all the work that you do. So uh, that's our show. Thank you, Mark and Maya Silver and Rob Harris. You have been wonderful, and uh, we'll see you guys hopefully soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Kenny, you didn't chime in. Regarding? You were a teen whose father was sick. I was. What do you think about all this? Well, I would like to wish that man a happy 59th birthday. Yes. So what are your thoughts on that? You were surprisingly silent. Well, I was also surprisingly catching up on a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> I surprise. Uh, I think it's it's good. I think that the the voice of the, the teen. I mean, what did you do? You were 17, 16? Uh, 17 or 18. Right. A long time ago, like 10 years ago. And your sister was younger, 16, 15? No, she was much older. I thought she was younger. No. I, I stand here agog. Do you think <laughs> that my sister is younger than me? Yeah. No. All right. Uh, anyway, what did you do? You do what you do. Uh, you, one person doesn't get cancer; the whole family gets cancer. So, uh, it was. Uh, this is like a wormhole that you're going down. Well, I, the, the show was about you in a sense. Well, I think that you just go through it and you uh, you check off appointments from the calendar and, and hopefully come out good on the other side. Okay. You do it. I accept that answer. It's my two-minute keynote. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Annie, any final thoughts? It's just an interesting topic, and um, I think people, when you're, especially, I, I'm experiencing this right now, it's, 
It's, well, how old are your, your niece nephew? Uh, my nieces are 13 and 10. Okay. So they were 10 and 7, so, or, I don't know, like 8 and 11 last time, whatever. Um, so, you know, they've, they've seen it. And the best thing for, like, kids that age is to be honest and to tell them what's going on. Like, you don't go into extreme detail, but you're honest and you bring up, like, of course, for kids, the issue, um, for, you know, is hair. That's a big part of it for a lot of kids. But then even when I've been in chemotherapy, um, I've met a lot of parents, like a lot of moms, who didn't tell their kids. Wow. And because they just, like, didn't want to stress them out. But I think it's more stressful if you don't tell them. Mm -hmm. Because what if you're, you know, laid up in bed for two days with pain from a new Asta shot or whatever? You know, you ha I think honesty is the best way to do it. And, um, you know, he definitely brought that up and I thought that was a it's a very smart way to handle cancer and kids and you know you tell them what they need to know you don't need to give them an update every time you go to the doctor but right. you know it's good to keep them in the loop of what's going on and some kids deal with it differently she seemed you know she dealt Maya dealt with it in her own way and my nieces dealt with it in their own way and you know my one niece said it was pretty she was really excited to grow her hair out and donated it, and she surprised me on Thanksgiving with her new haircut. Wow. And, um, but then she said, Maya would never do that again because she couldn't wear a ponytail. Uh, and she was like seven. So okay. she's like, I've had this. I've had enough of this. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we forget about the caregivers a lot of times. Yeah. And how it affects them and how it stresses out with them and how they can cope. And I think that needs to be talked about a lot more, whether that be like, couple therapy or group therapy with the whole family. Um, I think more hospitals, need, more hospitals need to be proactive about that and more doctors need to be proactive about that because, uh, you know, they need help too. Well said. All right, folks, that's our show. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so... To all of you, a fun farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 307th broadcast. Uh, I was stumbling on this part. Hope you had as much fun as we did. Hope you're sick. That stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our guest, Gunnery Sergeant Retired Jay Flag, United States Marine Corps, Rob Harris from Rob Cares, and Mark and Maya Silver, authors of My Parent Has Cancer and It Really Sucks Real Life Advice from Real Life Teams. Next week's show, Stupid Stomach Cancer. Did you know that there are 22,000 diagnoses of stomach cancer each year? which is a significant percentage increasing in here. And else, join us as we welcome Debbie Zellman, the founder of Debbie's Dream Foundation, and young adult stomach cancer survivor Jess Max for an initiative, uh, what? Intensive conversation about this under-discussed issue. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't cancer, it ain't stupid. And I said that backwards. 
Live from the Kimo Dark, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny King, Maureen, Sue, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next Monday, live at 8. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. Good night.